This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello, I'm Christine Bowen and I'm lead editor at BMJ Learning. Bell's palsy is the most common unilateral facial palsy in adults. It is most prevalent in people between 15 and 45 years of age, and it can cause a range of complications, including ongoing facial weakness, keratoconjunctivitis sicker, exposure, keratopathy, and ectropion. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management of the condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Matthew Miller, who is an assistant professor in otolaryngology in the head and neck surgery department at the University of North Carolina. He's also director of the University of North Carolina Facial Nerve Centre. And importantly, Matt is also author of our BMJ best practice topic on Bell's palsy. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's start off by asking, what exactly is Bell's palsy? So I think the best place to start is what is facial paralysis? And facial paralysis is when injury to the facial nerve results in really an inability to move the muscles on one side of the face because the facial nerve controls all of those muscles of facial expression. And as you said in your introduction, Christine, Bell's palsy is the most common cause of facial paralysis. And for listeners, facial paralysis and facial palsy are the exact same thing, just different terminology. In the United States, we typically say facial paralysis. Over in the UK and Europe, facial palsy is the most common terminology, but it's the exact same thing. And Bell's palsy is the most common cause of facial palsy, and it does affect about one in 60 people during their lifetime. So it's certainly not the most common illness we see as doctors, but it's pretty common. It's to the point that either somebody typically has had Bell's palsy or they know somebody who has had Bell's palsy during their lifetime. And it can be devastating for patients because for lack of better words, it looks like they've had a stroke when it first comes on. The face goes completely flaccid, it goes completely drooped, and then 70% of the time it recovers, but 30% of the time it doesn't fully recover. And look, we use our faces to express ourselves. I mean, facial expressions are the universal communication for people. And so, yeah, that is why Bell's palsy is so devastating. Um, And that's why I've dedicated really my professional life to um, helping patients with Bell's palsy and other causes of face paralysis out. And how do you make the diagnosis and what kind of recent advances have there been in diagnosing Bell's palsy? Yes, and so that's the, I think the most important thing when you're first seeing somebody who's been affected by facial paralysis is making the correct diagnosis because at least a couple of times a month, I'm seeing somebody who has been labeled with Bell's palsy who really has a different cause of facial paralysis because I'm all, right now I'm currently treating more than 30 different causes of facial paralysis at the University of North Carolina Facial Nerve Center. And you, of course, want to make sure you've got the correct diagnosis. It is a clinical diagnosis. And so what that means is you do not need imaging. You do not need laboratory work to diagnose Bell's palsy. It presents as a sudden onset facial paralysis. And so within three days is when the paralysis of evolves to affect the muscles of the face. And honestly, usually, Christine, it's within 24 hours is when we see that paralysis onset. And other symptoms patients can have, patients can have some ear discomfort that sometimes will radiate a little bit around the ear. 
This is not a severe ear pain like we typically see in Ramsey Hunt syndrome, another common cause of facial paralysis, but it's more of a dull discomfort, a dull aching pain. Sound sensitivity is also a very common symptom patients with Bell's palsy can present with, which they'll describe as when I hear my baby crying or when I hear loud construction noise, I just can't tolerate it. My ears are exquisitely sensitive to sound. Taste changes is another very common thing we see with patients with Bell's palsy. But those are really the symptoms. It's just sudden onset facial palsy, facial paralysis. It's ear discomfort, not severe pain usually, some taste changes. But that's really where the picture stops. If you start seeing other neurologic symptoms or if you start seeing rash in the ear, room spinning, dizziness, those are things which want, um, should make you start to question your diagnosis. So I guess one of the things you mentioned was, you know, how it can always look like a patient's had a stroke. And I guess then is the difficulty in terms of trying to make that uh, distinction. Is it come down to the sort of um, examination and kind of key things to look out for neurologically? What would your tips be there? Without a doubt, yes. And so and I encourage everyone, whether you have facial paralysis, signs of facial paralysis, onset, whether you have a friend, family member who's calling you to tell you about the sudden facial weakness, get to a doctor, whether it's an urgent care, whether it's an emergency department, whether it's your primary care doctor, get to a doctor because really it does take a good medical examination, a good neurologic examination to make sure you're not having a stroke. Because yes, stroke sometimes does present with sudden onset facial weakness. And so, but Christine, usually a stroke is going to have other neurologic findings, vision changes, double vision, trouble moving the eyes in all directions, weakness of an arm or leg, numbness of an arm or leg, um, dizziness, a stroke can present with that, uh, sensory changes in the face. And so there will be, if it is a stroke, there will be other neurologic changes present on exam and by patient history as well, usually too. So it's looking out for those other things. And are there sort of typical things you would expect to see in a Bell's palsy patient, just in summary? what those would be. Yeah, so if I had to give my bullet points of Bell's palsy, both exam findings and history, sudden onset facial paralysis, a facial weakness developing within 72 hours, usually within 24 hours of onset, ear discomfort, taste changes, sound sensitivity, and on exam, the face just droops. It's flaccid, but you don't have any other neurologic findings on exam. Great, thank you. And what is the mainstay of management when you decide that the diagnosis is Bell palsy? Yes, great question. Um, steroids, steroids, steroids. And so a lot of research has been done. And in particular, there is a landmark paper in 2007 published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which it's a pretty big journal. And certainly for facial paralysis, that's um, you're doing very well to get your paper in New England Journal of Medicine. And what they did was they did a randomized controlled trial and they looked at steroids, prednisolone specifically, acyclovir specifically, and doing nothing. And they followed these patients to nine months, which is really important in Bell's palsy because that's about how long it takes to really see if patients are going to make a full recovery sometimes. And what they found is steroids improves the chances that patients will make a complete recovery. And ideally, you want to give those steroids within three days of Bell's palsy onset. So the timing's really important in terms of giving those quickly. 
Absolutely. And again, that's why it's so important for patients first to get to doctors and other medical practitioners when they develop this facial palsy. And then for, of course, practitioners to recognize that, yes, this is Bell's palsy. Let me prescribe steroids. And Christine, I'll also say a lot of people, including myself, will add an antiviral onto that. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that the antiviral does have additive benefits on top of the steroids. Uh, my specific treatment for acute Bell's palsy is prednisone, 60 milligrams a day for 10 days, and then Valtrex or Valacyclovir, 1,000 milligrams three times a day for one week. Okay. And are there any other recent advances in management, or is it quite established? So by far, the most evidence supports the use of steroids, plus or minus antiviral for acute Bell's palsy. And other things that people are doing, uh, some very targeted facial neuromuscular retraining early on, um, some evidence suggests that can improve the chances of a complete recovery. And we will talk later, I think, about what a complete recovery and incomplete recovery looks like. So facial physical therapy and then protecting the eye is really important, but we've known that for quite some time because ex this exposure keratopathy can occur pretty quickly if you're not able to fully close your eye. And so you really want to protect that eye. Okay, that's really important. And are there any common pitfalls in management that we should be aware of or any particular complications to look out for? Yes, so I think, Christine, the biggest pitfall in diagnosis, first of all, is just making an incorrect diagnosis and missing a diagnosis because one of the more common things I will see is a gradual onset to facial paralysis. So say facial paralysis that occurs over weeks to months, and these patients will get labeled as Bell's palsy, whereas we end up diagnosing, unfortunately, oftentimes a head and neck cancer that has invaded the facial nerve and has caused this slower onset facial weakness. And there's some other, uh, there's some other causes of facial paralysis that can sort of masquerade as Bell's palsy. And so I think the biggest pitfall is not making the correct diagnosis. And again, with a good history and a good exam, you really should be able to um, make a pretty certain diagnosis of Bell's palsy. That's good to know. And is there any pitfalls in management particularly that we need to be aware of? Yes, yeah, so, you know, I think not getting steroids um, is probably the biggest one. And there are some studies that looked at whether you could just use an antiviral, so whether you could just treat with acyclovir or valacyclovir to try to avoid some of the side effects of steroids, because of course they're not benign medications. But really, those studies have shown that just treating with an antiviral and not giving steroids is not the best management for acute Bell's palsy. And so um, when it comes to acute Bell's palsy, I, I think really you have to give steroids um, and it has to be high dose steroids. So a lot of times, at least in the United States, we'll give a Medrol dose pack. Um, I'll see patients who've been treated with a Medrol dose pack and that's not high enough. That's not a high enough dose of steroids. And so again, I do 60 milligrams of prednisone a day for 10 days. That study I mentioned, that was in New England Journal of Medicine, they used 50 milligrams of prednisolone for 10 days and so it's got to be high dose steroids for at least a week okay so the key message is steroids as quickly as you can and and a decent dose great and what are the chances that patients will make a full recovery from bell's palsy 
So 70% of patients will make a complete recovery with regard to their facial symmetry and their facial function, meaning that when they're walking down the street and they're meeting new people, they're talking with their family, friends, those family, friends, people they're meeting will not know that they ever had Bell's palsy in the past. And that's 70%, which is important for patients and practitioners who are counseling patients to offer reassurance to them. However, 30% of patients, and this affects one in 60 patients in their lifetime, of, would not make a complete recovery. And what that looks like is in Bell's palsy, the face will almost never stay flaccid. It will almost never stay looking like a patient has had a stroke. What happens is as the facial nerve recovers from this insult, from this, and we can talk more about that later, what's causing Bell's palsy actually, but as the facial nerve recovers and it sends all these branches out into the face, you have at least 50 branches of the facial nerve by the time you get toward the middle of your face, innervating 40 plus muscles on each side of your face, which is what we use to express ourselves. As this facial nerve regenerates, the face gets a little bit miswired. And so these tiny, tiny nerve branches don't find the right home all the time. They don't find the right facial muscles. And so parts of patients' faces with chronic Bell's palsy can feel too tight. Other parts of their faces can feel too weak. And then you can get this phenomenon called synkinesis, which are involuntary facial movements associated with voluntary facial movements. A great example of that is when patients smile, oftentimes their eye will close at the same time, which as you can imagine is this, is a, can be a very disfiguring and distracting um, thing for patients to have to deal with. And so, and there's a lot of other forms of synkinesis, but that's what chronic Bell's palsy looks like. So patients don't remain looking like they've had a stroke, but their facial nerve becomes miswired as it's recovering. And it leads to this picture of too tight, some parts of the face which are too tight, other parts which are too weak, relatively speaking, and then synkinesis. And I've heard patients sometimes comment before that maybe if they're tired or there's other things that might trigger symptoms being worse, what kind of triggers have you found in your patients? In your patients. Yes, and so especially in the first few months as the facial nerve is regenerating, it's very common for patients to talk about how when they're under increased stress, whether that's personal stress, work stress, when they're tired, so maybe more at the end of the day, they will almost feel like their face is starting to droop a little bit again. And that's because, again, all these nerve branches are growing across the face, making these new connections with the facial muscles. And so they are still relatively weak compared to the healthy side of their face, the unaffected side of their face. Then once these patients get into the chronic Bell's palsy phases, so we're talking at least months, if not years or decades, honestly, down the road, because their face feels tight all the time, I mean, these muscles sometimes are firing all during the day because of these abnormal nerve connections, their face can feel worn out. Because it'd be like if you constantly weight lifted with your arm or with your leg, of course, your arm or leg would feel tired. And the same thing with your face. If your muscles are firing all the time, it can lead to this significant facial fatigue that patients experience. And for those patients who have had Bell's palsy for many years, is there treatments that can still help them? We've talked about acute treatments, but is there anything that they, they can try? Absolutely. And I think that's the most exciting part of my field, this facial paralysis, this facial palsy subspecialty that um, now exists is I've treated patients who've had Bell's palsy for 45 years. And the reason that they come to me so late is because 
a lot of doctors, of course, very well-intentioned, don't know anything does exist. But right now we have a lot of treatments and especially the last five to 10 years has been a renaissance of treatments for the patient with chronic Bell's palsy. So I always start with facial physical therapy, facial neuromuscular retraining is the technical term for that. Because again, it's patients need to learn how to make the most of the new face setup that they have, the new facial architecture that they have, the way the nerves have regrown, the muscles have either hypertrophied or remained a little bit too weak. That's where we start. Botox are the same thing we treat our cosmetic patients with. Botox is typically covered by insurance for facial paralysis, at least in the United States, it's typically covered by insurance, which is great. And we can use Botox or botulinum toxin because there are other formulations, of course, to strategically weaken certain muscles to both improve facial symmetry and treat that synkinesis, especially around the eye, that involuntary eye closing botulinum toxin works very, very well at treating that synkinesis. It can treat neck tightness really nicely. And so that's typically where we go after facial therapy. And then when it comes to smile symmetry, because the smile asymmetry of chronic Bell's palsy can be devastating for patients. Pretty good research shows that the chronic Bell's palsy smile actually shows more disgust sometimes and it shows happiness, which no one wants to live that way, not being able to show that they're happy. We want to be able to show we're happy to our friends, our family, to strangers. And so we now have multiple different surgeries that can improve smile symmetry in these patients, no matter how long they've had Bell's palsy. And that's what I think is so encouraging to tell patients is even if you don't make a full recovery, even if your smile remains asymmetric, don't give up hope. We can do things to make these incremental improvements to help you show happiness when you smile, help you show joy when you smile. So it's really important to get it right with such an impact, definitely. Um, and you did mention earlier something about causes as well, um, wanting to touch on the different causes of Bell palsy. Yes. Yeah, so when it comes to Bell's palsy, most people believe that what happens is the herpes virus, which almost everybody in the world has the herpes virus living within us, reactivates in the facial nerve. And when that herpes virus reactivates in the facial nerve, it causes swelling. And because the facial nerve starts in the brainstem and then travels through the temporal bone before leaving the bone and exiting out into the face, as that nerve swells within the bony canal it lives in, the bone starts to compress the nerve. And that compression of the nerve by the bone is what causes the temporary damage of Bell's palsy to the facial nerve, which of course then results in the facial palsy. And then once the swelling goes down is when patients begin to experience that recovery, that facial nerve regeneration, all those many, many nerve fibers growing back out into the face and making new connections with the facial muscles. Thank you. Um, this has been a really interesting and insightful kind of summary of, of Bell's palsy. If you had to sort of finish off with kind of some of your key top tips or any other points that you feel that we've missed, what, what would those be? Absolutely. No, this has been um, very fun to be able to talk about something I'm so passionate about and something that is so impactful for our patients in this forum. So thank you for having me again. Top tips. So let's start with diagnosis. Look for sudden onset facial paralysis, no other neurologic symptoms on exam, maybe sound sensitivity, maybe taste changes. 
So that's how you make the diagnosis. Biggest sort of pitfall in diagnosis is if you see a gradual onset facial paralysis, you have to think about another cause because Bell's palsy is almost never gradual onset. Similarly, if you see other neurologic symptoms, you want to think about other causes, including a stroke, of course. And in treatment, steroids, steroids, steroids. Plus or minus an antiviral, but you have to give high-dose steroids at least one week of, I would suggest, 60 milligrams for adults, 60 milligrams a day for at least a week. And I add on an antiviral on top of that, about Trex 1,000 milligrams three times a day. And protect the eye, specifically for eye protection, eye drops during the day, eye ointment at night. You can actually have patients tape their eye closed as well during the nighttime if they're still struggling with eye irritation, with eye pain when they wake up in the morning. And then as far as chronic management for those 30% of patients who do not make a full recovery, don't give up hope. We now have so many options, whether it's for facial tightness, whether it's for facial fatigue, whether it's for synkinesis, whether it's for smile asymmetry, there's so many options. And so you really do want to get those patients to a specialist who can offer them the wide spectrum of treatments for their chronic Bell's palsy. Thanks so much, Matt. And thanks to you all for listening. Um, We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again.